All right, we're, we're in this series called 40 Days of Clarity. It's about temptation and deception and finding your true identity. It's a, it's a series for the season of Lent. Um, we're talking about temptation because I think that uh, it brings clarity, finally. Um, good or bad, hard or easy, uh, one of the benefits of going through temptation there are benefits to temptation, is clarity. At least it's a possibility. We're taking five weeks to talk about the temptations of Jesus, this really unique story in the Gospels about Jesus being tempted, because I'm hoping that by doing that, we will be able to better understand our own battles with sin, our own battles with deception and temptation, and false ideas that we embrace about ourselves. So the, tempt the temptations of Christ... They happen in the Gospels right after the scene in which Jesus is baptized. The baptism of Christ is this point of great clarity for Christ and all who witness it. And then he goes right into the desert for this long season of temptation. And I want to say that's also about clarity. That's also a story which clarifies who Jesus is, both for himself and for those of us who get the benefit of hearing the story. The story is really unique. It's one of the only stories we have about Jesus from Jesus's perspective. Often the stories about Jesus are told from the perspective of an eyewitness. However, no one's with Jesus in the desert. So at some point he comes out of the desert. Later, he calls a bunch of disciples to himself and he shares with them this story about his own life. I think because he wants us to know that he was tempted and he wants them and wants us to learn from his experience. John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, says this, is a, this whole story is for our instruction. So we want to address this story and mine this story for some of the great stuff that we can experience and learn from Christ's uh, season of temptation. Sermon title today is, A Man Had a Fig Tree in His Vineyard. Uh, so here's our plan. I want to tell three stories uh, together this morning. The first is a story about Jesus. The second is a story about a, a skylark. And the third is a story that Jesus tells about a fig tree. All right? I'll make some observations about those three stories. Let's start with Matthew chapter 4. This is Matthew's account of the temptations of Jesus on page 676 in the Bibles that we handed out. Right after the baptism scene, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So this is a story about resisting temptation. Fundamentally, this is a story about resisting temptation. What was the temptation for Jesus in this experience? There's, it's multifaceted. First, his temptation at a fundamental level was to disbelieve the words of the Father. To disbelieve the words of the Father. The end of Matthew 3, the Father says, This is my Son. I love him. And the very beginning of this temptation questions that assertion. The tempter says, if you are, we talked recently about how the adversary's strategy is to twist and pervert and to question the words of God. The devil can't create. Evil can't create. It can only take good and beautiful things and twist them, pervert them. And that's, that's like... Right out of the playbook. So the father's just declared Jesus is his son. The tempter's opening lines invite Jesus to question that very truth. 
whether the words of the Father can be trusted. And that's, so that's part of temptation. We need to recognize that. Another part of temptation for Jesus is to use his own power to meet his own needs in a way that's outside of the plan of God, outside of the design of God. What was God's plan? What was God's design? Well, simply stated, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son into the world as a real human being to live and die as one of us. In other words, part of Jesus' mission is to not use his own divine power during his life and ministry on earth. He is, in other words, fully dependent, voluntarily fully dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit to resist temptation, to obey the words of the Father, even to heal the brokenness of the world. This is critical. Christ is tempted here to turn stones into bread. To Essentially, the temptation is to go outside of the plan of the Father in order to meet his own needs, to use his own divine power to meet his personal needs. Now, why would that be such a terrible thing if he did that? It's because you and I don't have divine power with which to resist temptation and honor the Father and do restorative work. We, are, we have to rely on the power of God. In order for Jesus to be truly and fully human, he has to do that too. He has to show us the real deal about how to be a real and full human. To compromise that would have been to, and this is the third temptation, reject his true identity. He would have been carving a new narrative, right, that is against the narrative that the Father has set. So he resists the temptation to embrace a false identity and instead embraces a true identity. Now, that's a lot of theology wrapped up there, but essentially this is it. Simply stated, Jesus' temptation is to distrust the Father, go outside of God's plan, the Father's plan, and to reject who he truly is. He is the Son of God. He needs to embrace that, his true identity. He is loved by God. He's going to reject any kind of false identity that says you're not. All right. How does Jesus then resist this temptation? A few observations here. One, he doesn't get sucked into Satan's prove-it-to-me plan. His, his, his faulty terms of, of a deal in which Jesus is supposed to prove something that God has already said to be true is true. Your adversary, friends, my adversary, is always going to try to dist distract us from simply trusting the true words of the good father. He's going to try to distract us from simply trusting the truth spoken by the good father and to make us instead look at our own situation as proof of whether or not we're loved by God or not. That's like right out of the playbook. Don't believe what has been said. Instead, prove to me by looking at your life and how great or not great it's been, the truth about whether or not you're actually blessed or loved by God. Jesus resists the temptation to get sucked into Satan's terms. In other words, Satan's deal. It's a bad deal. The terms are faulty from the beginning. Say, Jesus doesn't play the game is another way of saying it. He's like, uh-uh. Just says what's written. And then he quotes scripture. That's the second thing he does. He quotes scripture. 
And he quotes Deuteronomy 8, where Moses is talking to the people of Israel. They've just finished 40 years in the desert. It's like a parallel to Jesus' 40 days in the desert. They're about to enter into the promised land, and Moses is giving them a short summary of where they've been. Here's what has happened in the last 40 years. I'm going to sort of summarize it for you. Moses says, God humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which is this mysterious food that appears while they're in the desert in the Old Testament. It's a strange thing. It's a mysterious food. Moses says, God humbled you, caused you to hunger, and then fed you with manna, which neither you or your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus is just quoting scripture. He's just coming right out of Deuteronomy 8 and saying this and his response to, to Satan's first temptation. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Third, Jesus resists temptation by submitting his appetites to his will. This is what many of you are practicing with me during Lent. We're practicing submitting our appetites to our will. In our culture, our appetites are almost uh, fed without restraint. There's almost nothing that ever causes us to like, say no to what we want, what we, what we feel, Consequently, our, our wills are weak, our appetites are strong. Jesus resists temptation by submitting his appetites to his will. Fourth, he submits his will to the will of the Father. Later in his life, he says, not my will, but yours be done. This is an example of him doing that already. Submitting not his will, or submitting his will, not following his will, but submitting his will to the will of the Father. And fifth, and ultimately, Jesus resists temptation by choosing his true identity, consciously choosing it. He is the son of God. That's the truth. So that's what he embraces. He chooses to live as the son of God. Chris Austin says, Jesus' temptation was for our instruction. So Jesus shows us how to be truly human, how to live as we were designed to live, how we were meant to live. So the story of Jesus' temptation is essentially a story about how to resist temptation, isn't it? It's a story about how, it's a, we can go there for instruction specifically on how to resist the temptations that we face because it is not accurate to think that Jesus had some sort of supernatural ability from which he drew strength, unlike our own. Therefore, well, it was Jesus, of course he resisted temptation. No, the whole point is that he was in the desert as a real human, so we can look at him as flawed and broken humans as, uh, for instruction on how to overcome uh, the temptations that we face. So one of the primary things that we can learn from the story is how to resist temptation. I think it could be helpful, second story, to, to get into um, uh, a sense of understanding of what it looks like to not resist temptation or to give into temptation. Um, so let me read this story to you. I read this story when I was in college. It totally captured my attention, and I've just never forgotten it. I've never gotten rid of this book. It's out of this book called uh, Feathers of the Skylark, and it's, it's essentially a book about um, sexual compulsion and addiction. But he begins this book with this really powerful story. This is, a, this is a Jewish fable. It's not in the Bible, but it's like a fairy tale or a fable that I think is really instructive. So this is a story. I'm going to read it to you. This is a story about what it looks like to give in to temptation. One day a long time ago, over the hot sands of the Middle Eastern country, a skylark flew in joyous loops about the sky. As she swooped near the earth, she heard a merchant cry out, Worms! Worms! Worms for feathers! Delicious worms! 
The skylark circled about the merchant, hungry at the mention of worms, but puzzled as to what the merchant meant. Little did the skylark know that the merchant was the devil. And seeing the little skylark was interested, the devil motioned her nearer. Come here, my little friend. Come, see the lovely worms I have. Cautiously, the skylark landed and cocked her head at the merchant. Come, taste the juicy worms. The skylark became aware that she was indeed hungry, and these worms looked bigger and tastier than any she had ever dug for herself in the hard scrabble ground of the desert. The skylark hopped closer and put her beak close to the worm. Two worms for one feather, my friend. Two worms for one. The skylark was unable to resist. She had, after all, so many feathers. So with a swift motion, she pulled out a feather, just a small one from beneath her wing, and she gave it to the merchant. Take your pick, my little friend, said the merchant. Two worms, your heart's desire. And so the skylark quickly snatched up two of the plumpest worms and swallowed her meal with delight. Never before had she tasted such wonderful worms. With a loud chirp, she leaped into the air and resumed her joyous flight. Day after day, the skylark returned, and always the merchant had wonderful worms to offer, black ones and blue ones and red ones and green ones and iridescent shiny ones. But one day after eating her fill, the skylark leaped into the air and, to her horror, she fell to the ground with a thud. She was unable to fly. All at once, with a shock, she realized what had happened. From the delicious worms, she had grown fatter and fatter, and she plucked her feathers one by one, first her body, then her tail, and finally even her wings had grown balder and balder. Horrified, she remembered how slowly, imperceptibly, day by day, it had been getting harder and harder to fly, and now she had, and how she had told herself that it was no matter. She could stop any time she wanted. She could stop before it was too late. Now, suddenly, here she was, trapped on the ground. She looked up, and she saw the merchant looking at her. Was that a sly, small grin spreading across his face? In terror, the skylark ran off into the desert. She ran and ran and ran and ran. It took her hours and hours Never in her entire life had she run or walked so far. Finally, she came to the softer ground near the desert springs where before she met the merchant, she had daily come to dig for herself small and dusty brown desert worms that could be found near the springs. The skylark dug and dug in a frenzy. She piled up worm after worm until it was nearly dark, and then she wrapped her catch in a, in a small fallen palm frond and dragged it back across the sand where she saw the merchant closing up his stall for the night. The skin around her beak was bruised and tender. Her small feet were bleeding from running such a great distance and having to be forced to walk. Oh, merchant, oh, merchant, please help me. Please help me. I cannot fly anymore. Oh, dear, what shall I do? Please, please take these worms from me and give me back my feathers. The merchant bent down and peered at the terrified skylark. He threw back his head. He roared with laughter, a gold tooth glinting in the red and setting sunlight. Oh, I'll take those worms, all right, my friend. A few weeks in this good soil, and they too will be fat and green and glistening. He unwrapped the worms and tossed them into the jar of humid, dark soil. But feathers? He laughed again. What are you going to do with feathers? Glue them on with spit? 
He wheezed and cackled at his little joke. Besides my friend, the merchant reached down and grabbed the already plucked and fattened skylark. That's not my business. Feathers for worms. Oh, no. He threw the skylark into a cage. My business is worms for feathers. The merchant slammed the little cage door shut and smiled hungrily at his victim. And with a loud snap of his fingers, he vanished into the desert air. That's a story about giving in to temptation over and over and over again. What was the temptation in that story? Easy worms. I mean, think about the words used in that story. Worms. Quick satisfaction. Appetite. That's the temptation. To say yes to the appetite. Fulfillment without work. That was the temptation. The temptation was to trade a little seemingly inconsequential part of her true self, just one feather, for immediate short-term fulfillment. This story is an almost perfect opposite of the story about Jesus and the stones to bread. The skylark chooses to meet her needs outside of the plan of God. She chooses a shortcut. Give me worms, take my feathers. Think about that for a minute. Give me worms, take my feathers. Take my beauty. Take my warmth. Take my freedom. Just give me instant fulfillment. I gotta have it. And in so doing, she actively chooses a false identity. That's what she does. She chooses a false identity. She embraces things about herself that are not actually true. But they become true in a sense because more and more they actually describe who she is. The truth is, she's a skylark. That's who she was designed to be. But she gives in to temptation through a series of small, seemingly inconsequential decisions. She takes a shortcut to what she wants. She lets her appetites lead her will. She submits her will to a deal offered by the merchant. He's a merchant. He's a salesman. He's got ulterior motives for this situation. She thinks it's a good deal, doesn't realize the long-term costs of saying yes to this momentary pleasure, The truth is she is a skylark. She's a bird. She was designed to fly, but incrementally she rejects that truth. She trades in her feathers, which are core to her identity. She believes the words of the merchant who is the devil. She buys into his terms. She accepts his deal, and steadily, day by day, she chooses a false identity for herself, and in so doing, she actually becomes something false, something less than what she was meant to be, which is a bird without feathers who is unable to fly. She's caged. She's trapped in sin. Some of the most heartbreaking conversations I've had over the last 20 years when I've had the privilege of being in this role of kind of providing soul care for people are the conversations in which people recognize, almost like out of a fog, that so much of their life is pretend. So much of their life is false. And they actually have a hard time naming anything that's true, that's authentic, that's real. That's tragic. It's tragic. 
They want to be rescued, but they're not actually sure who they are. It's complicating, and it makes the whole thing such a tragedy because they've embraced this false sense of self. So that's a story about giving in to temptation and the tragedy um, of saying yes to this kind of insidious deception over and over again. Finally, let me wrap it up with a story that Jesus himself tells about a fig tree planted in a vineyard. This is a story about a choice, the choice that you and I have to make to embrace our true selves or not, to embrace who we were created to be. The reason I'm telling you this story is to emphasize the choice that God in his design gives us to make. Jesus seems to tell this story as a bit of a warning, but then at the end, there's this really hopeful and interesting twist. So I want to set the table a bit, stay with me, and then we'll get to like why I'm talking about the story more in a second. This starts with this vague and passing reference to two disasters, which were apparently well known to the people of that time. This is in Luke 13, starting with verse 1. Um, this is how it begins. Now, there were, some, there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices, which is an awesome way to start a story. So um, Galileans, people who live up in the north of Israel, Pilate, the Roman governor of a Jewish region. There was a Jewish leader named a, a, called a tetrarch there. He was so incompetent, Rome, who was in control, puts their own governor in. His name's Pontius Pilate. You've heard of him because he plays into the death of Christ later. And what does Pilate do? He mixes these Galileans' blood with their own sacrifices. So what does that mean? Some scholars believe that this is in reference to a time when Pilate started taking money from the temple tax, the Jewish temple tax, like their tithe, and using that money to build a Roman aqueduct through his area. The Jews, of course, revolt because this is sacred money. We've given it to the church, essentially. It's for the church. They revolt. Pilate sends in the Roman guard and slaughters them right in front of the temple. So they're slaughtering sheep. That's their sacrifice. And then they get slaughtered, and their blood is mixed with the blood of their sacrifices. It's this really violent scene. And so Jesus is teaching in Luke 13, and these people come up and they're like, Jesus, did you hear about what happened up in Galilee? And Jesus' response is, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? <laughs> Which is like, wait a, minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And then Jesus answers, in other words, Jesus is saying, do you think this tragedy that happened in front of the temple is somehow a divine judgment? And then he answers his own question. He says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all perish. So Jesus is going like Mach 8 right out of the gate here. Then he gives a second example, or he like continues their story. He's like, oh, and have you heard about the 18 uh, who died when the tower fell on them in Siloam? And most scholars here believe that this is in reference to Jewish people who bought into Pilate's plan, went to work building that Roman aqueduct, and in so doing, partnered with the enemy. And then the tower, this tower fell on them, this construction accident. And some people are like, yeah, see, serves them right. And Jesus says, do you think they were more guilty than the people living in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Jesus is making friends here. 
So the sense is everyone's shaking their head about this tragedy that has happened up in the north, kind of like we shake our heads when we hear the news of a mass shooting, or we shake our heads when we look at the, the flooding in the Midwest, or we shake our heads when, when all of paradise burns. And then somebody actually says, do you think that was maybe God's judgment on those people? And Jesus is like, no, that's stupid. That is not what's going on here. And basically, the same thing's going to happen to you unless you repent. I mean, it's an absolute, he just spins it right on him. In other words, he's saying the people in paradise were no more sinful than the people in Chico whose homes did not burn. Everyone's a sinner. Everyone needs to repent. Everyone is going to be punished unless they run and will suffer unless they run for rescue to God. It's a very intense response. It's like these people are just saying, hey, Jesus, did you hear about? And he essentially says, yeah, and that's the same thing that's going to happen to you unless you repent. So right about the time you're feeling like Jesus is cold-hearted and socially really awkward, because maybe they're just trying to share a story with him, uh, he shares a story with them. And he's setting them up. He's setting them up in a way that's confrontational. It's like holy provocation here. And then he drops in this story. We'll end with this. It's a story about this fig tree planted in a vineyard. Luke 13, 6. Then he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but he didn't find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fruit tree, and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. I will dig around it. I will fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. What a weird story, huh? Here's what Jesus is saying, I think. To those who are like a fruitless fig tree, to those who were made to produce this good fruit but have not yet produced that good fruit, Jesus is declaring a gospel of the second chance or the third chance or the, or the fourth chance. Jesus is recognizing the truth that many of us look in the mirror and we're like, how did I, how did I get here? How did I, how did I arrive at this place? I've made so many mistakes. I'm not happy with where I am. I don't believe this is actually truly me. This isn't me, but this is me now. I've become this. Jesus is recognizing that many of us feel this way and saying, there's another chance. There's a third chance. Maybe there's even a fourth chance. If you've embraced a false identity, if you're living in a way that you were not designed to live, if you've traded your feathers for worms, if you've given into temptation, if you've traded your false identity as daughters and sons of the living God for something totally inferior to that, in order to be satisfied with some bread or something like that, Jesus is preaching to you, there's another chance. Hold on for a second. Wait another year. I'm going to give you another chance. I'm going to give you a third chance, a fourth chance. It's not too late. Secondly, Jesus is drawing our attention, so he's given us this second chance idea, and secondly, he's drawing our attention to this rarely focused on character in every person's story, which is the character of the one who advocates. He's introducing us to the advocate, to the story of the one who comes alongside, the one who says, wait, wait, let's not cut, the this isn't over, this story's not over, I will come in, I will commit my life I will help out this person. 
I will, I'll dig up the hard ground. I'll invest my time. I'll fertilize. I'll invest. I'll work here. I'll do the hard work. I will help them become the person that they were created to be. I can see something in them, and I'm not ready to give up yet. Now, some church fathers believe that the man who takes care of the vineyard is Jesus, who is our advocate, who is the advocate for the human race, who ultimately rescues us from destruction. Friends, other church fathers think that the man who takes care of the vineyard refers to anyone who comes alongside someone who's in trouble and serves as an advocate for them. Anyone, the mom who will not give up on her kids, the youth worker who will just continue to get rejected, 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 lied to, lied to, but will not give up on the kids in their rebellion, in their stupidity, the faithful friend who sees in a person what they can't even see in themselves, but says, I'm not giving up on you. I am staying here. In fact, I will personally invest my time, my energy, my heart in breaking up the hard ground around you so that you can become who you were created to be. You're a child of God. You don't even see that right now. You're so deceived. You're so broken. You've traded in so many of your feathers for worms. But you're like a, there's something greater in you, and I can see that. There's like this, and I'm going to call that truth out. I'm going to invite that God-given potential to stand up and live. You're like a child. This is a C.S. Lewis image. You're like the, the child who is satisfied with a mud puddle, with the ocean behind his back. And the advocate is the one who comes in and says, you can't see that ocean behind you, but I can. I know you were made for better things. I know you were created for better things. You're just satisfied with this crappy mud puddle in front of you. There's more to life than this. So I'm gonna, gi so I'm gonna give this to you. I'm gonna give you my life in order to advocate truth in yours. So the first thing Jesus wants us to see, I think, is this is a gospel of the second chance or the third or fourth. And the second is that, Jesus and his followers will give their lives to help the deceived become who they truly are, sons and daughters of the living God. And finally, yes, Jesus is giving a warning here. He is. He's giving a warning. There will be a day of judgment. Oftentimes we hear judgment, we think punishment. I want to invite you, when I say judgment, think clarity. Truth. There will be a day of clarity. In other words, for uh, there will be a day when birds who have given away their feathers will finally realize the tragic reality. They can't fly. That's the truth now. They can't fly. When fruitless fig trees, those who have not produced the kind of fruit they were designed to produce, they will be cut down. That's just the truth. That's the judgment. That's the clarity. And so the big part of this fig tree story, yes, it is a warning. It is a warning, which feels like a threat, doesn't it? It can feel like a threat. Warnings can feel like threats. So let me wrap up here by telling you, I don't think that's Jesus's motive. I think this is why he gives the warning. He wants to warn us to resist temptation. Resist temptation. He wants us to recognize and reject false identity. So we can look at something and say, no, that is not who I am. That's not me. That's not me. He wants us to recognize and then reject false identity. Uh-uh. That's not me. That's why he's given us this warning. Come on, you can do it. You can do it. You can reject what is not true. 
And finally, he wants us to see the beauty hidden inside to call out the truth, the God-given potential in others, and like Jesus, to give our lives to come alongside others and restore all things to wholeness. That's why he's given us this warning. It's a loving warning. It's the warning from a, uh, the heart of a good father who longs to give good gifts to his children. It's a warning like I would give a warning to my sons, motivated by love, Say no to that. It is not in your best interest. It will destroy you. Instead, let's embrace this mission of helping others to be restored. Let's take this whole deceptive game, turn it on its ear, and instead of asking, how many worms can I eat before I lose my feathers, let's just go straight the other direction and say, I'm going to pursue the truth of the holiness of God so that I can help others restore their true identities. That's a mission that's compelling to me. That's what I want to be a part of. And I think that's why Jesus tells us this confrontational story um, about being the advocate here, about the man who plants a fig tree in the vineyard. Amen. Let's pray together. Thanks, Lord, for the people who have advocated for me in times of confusion, didn't give up on me, Would you please give us the grace to recognize deception for what it is and to run away from it, to embrace our true identity, the one, to become the one that you've created us to be. In loving relationship with you, and God, thank you for the invitation to live this life on mission. Give us the insight and the power and the grace and the strength to advocate for others' wholeness as well. In Jesus' name, amen.